I would really want to emphasize whether it's an architect thinking about getting into development, do it, start it, make the first move, do something. Uh, and whether it's trying to make your, your town stronger or better or um, uh, make a little dent in a problem here or there, do make a first move, do a little something. I cannot believe the tiny things I do that I don't even think matter that snowball and people grab onto like just doing something and people go, Oh, look, he did something. Well, I think <laughs> I want to do something now. Hey, you want to go talk over coffee about the thing you did? I, I just, I never want anyone to discount how just the little things add up. Um, I never thought in my wildest dreams, anything that I was doing the last five years would amount to what it has so far. And I haven't gotten rich or wealthy or famous, but it's enriched my life tremendously. It introduced me to countless people. Probably more, I probably met more people in the past, you know, five or six years uh, around my interests than I probably have in my whole life. Um, it's just like everything blossoms and it's from just these little moves. Hello and welcome to episode number 69 of the Placemaking Podcast. Can't wait to share this next conversation with all of you here today. Now, today on the show, we have Carrie Westerbeck. Carrie is a small developer, architect, and community advocate. He grew up in the Seattle area and started his architecture practice in 2009 in the depths of the recession. Working as an architect since 2004, he's made the transition to being a small developer and general contractor for his own projects, fueled by a passion to create lovable urban places in his very own city. In 2019, Kerry completed his first mixed-use building, Burr Street Flats, in downtown Bothell, Washington, with plans for future buildings. He lives in his new building with his wife, Julie, and their two teen daughters. Kerry is an active advocate for urbanism, abundant housing, compact, walkable, equitable communities. In this episode, we learned about his transition from owning his own architecture firm to completing his first development project. We discussed the importance of neighborhood action groups and local government. And last but not least, we discussed how building a community that shares similar passions can really be beneficial for those in development and entrepreneurship. There's tons of great information in this episode, and I really hope you enjoy it. As always, if you have enjoyed the show, we'd ask that you please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in this industry. There'll be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Placemaking Podcast. Pretty excited today. We have Terry Westerbeck who is the founder and principal of Westbeck Architecture there in Washington, but is also a developer on the side. Uh, he's got a really interesting story, and I can't wait to dive right in. We got Mark here with us as well. Hey there. From abroad. Yeah. And uh, we're ready to jump right in. So, Kerry, could you yeah. tell Hi. us a little bit more about uh, your background? And, sure. And, uh, Kind of give us the 
a story of, of Carrie up to this point. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me, uh, gentlemen. Um, so I, uh, I grew up in the Seattle area. Kind of just on the on the edge of the well, we, we it's called called the the Puget Sound area, the Seattle Metro, the town called Woodenville, which is next door to where I now live in Bothell, and uh, I'm in an area where um, a lot of people work in the city of Seattle, so we're not too far outside of you know the metro area, and um, so I've been yeah uh, been here all, all my life, but um, I uh, I now live in Bothell after living uh, I've lived in the city of Seattle and various other cities around around the Puget Sound area. And though I travel, I I always uh, have made this home. And uh, I did a variety of different things when I was younger. I was a bicycle bicycle mechanic for almost ten years in the nineties. I uh, finished my undergraduate degree at the University of Washington Bothell back then in the late nineties. After bouncing around and doing some travel. And that was a, a more ecology-based Bachelor of Architecture, which the school has since turned into a Bachelor of Science. And we learned a lot about um, the culture of the Northwest, the ecology, forests, and oceans, everything that makes the Northwest Northwest, which interestingly ended up being a really good base for being an architect here. So uh, I worked for the city of Seattle for a few years in the late 90s, early 2000s with that degree. And saw I was working occasionally with landscape architects, not architects. And I really was fascinated by what they were doing. And I had years before been really interested in architecture. And my dad, as an aside, uh, was sort of a frustrated architect. He sure. he was in um, uh, office sales and sold really um, beautiful like Eames furniture and office systems and and uh, Knoll and all those you know wonderful mid century brands. And uh, so we always had amazing furniture and Eames chairs and stuff like that. So. I grew up in two different mid-century modern houses with flat roofs, you know, low slope roofs. So I sort of had, oh, wow. was, had a little bit of that dyed in the wool architecture, modern um, mid-century uh, Northwest aesthetic um, um, exposure as a young kid. I was the kid literally who in fourth grade or whatever, they said, draw your house. And mine had a flat roof and they thought <laughs> I did wrong. Box. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's what it looks like. <laughs> so uh, I uh, was landscape architects one of them had gone to the university of Washington and she said, well, you should check out their program. You know, if you feel like you want to go back and do design and, and one of them taught there. And, and uh, so with, without uh, making the story too much longer, I decided I would try and go to architecture school and the master's programs were the easiest route, the three-year program. So 2000, uh, I took a, a summer course at the university of Washington offers and a lot of universities offer where you kind of try it out for a, a summer for a quarter and they put you through sort of a studio process. And I loved it. And it allowed me to build a portfolio portfolio materials. And so then I applied to schools, four different schools uh, in 2001, uh, late 2000, something like that. And I got into all of them, funny enough, and uh, chose the University of Washington. My wife's a teacher. She's been teaching now for 30 years. It's one of us had to work. So we stayed okay. local. We already owned a house by then. I was about 30, 31 years old. So anyway, got my master's degree at the University of Washington, finished in 2004. And then I had five really good years at Johnston Architects, a really uh, a great firm in Seattle, still doing amazing work, known for their design work, doing every kind of project you can imagine. Lots of custom homes, multifamily, commercial, civic, libraries. Um, and it was a really fertile, busy time in the Seattle area then. So if you were an architect, you were in demand. And uh, I mean, I wasn't licensed at that point, but you know, anyone working in the, in the business engineers as well. Um, yeah. You know, we all yep. we kept each other busy. 
<laughs> and uh, so um, at first it was kind of hard to learn. And then all of a sudden I, I, I learned really fast and, and then they started piling stuff on because they realized I, I could get things done. So that was really fun. Uh, I got to do a lot of a lot of projects. And uh, then the recession hit 2008, 2009, um, like three quarters of our firm was laid off. <laughs> I was one of the last ones. And so that led me to uh, basically survival mode, which was start a firm, just doing people's remodels and decks and kitchens and things like that. Starting in 2009, state had some you know biz- business uh, startup programs to help people kind of survive. And um, so that was that was interesting. I, I used to say that was the the best bad thing that ever happened to me. That's great because it was sort of scary and awful, but also really freeing. I had just enough experience, probably not enough, but just enough to go off and do my own thing. Mm-hmm. I had, I was had already started taking my um, licensing licensing exams when I was when I got laid off. So I just had a little extra time to finish that, and I got that done within less than a year of being laid off and starting my firm. And uh, in a nutshell, the last, the last 13 years, I've been so practicing solo, raising two daughters um, and uh, living in Bothell. And then previous to Bothell, uh, Kenmore, the town next door, that came, came full circle, um, not full circle, but thinking about the future when I was still, uh, was it working for the, the previous firm, pre-recession, I had got exposed to Jonathan Siegel, architect developer down in San Diego. And, you know, this, this beguiling idea of, of building your own work, self-initiated. So that got, that seed got planted. And I, one of the guys I worked with had gone to the course and had the, the pack or, you know, the book that he, he gives you and everything with all the performance. And I was fascinated by that. So that kind of, uh, you know, just sat in the back of my mind for years. And by the time it's 2012, 13, I decided I, that was, that was something I had to do. At this point, I had remodeled every house we'd owned. Four, four houses, three houses at that point. Done a lot of the work myself. Um, was comfortable. I grew up doing carpentry and had worked carpentry a bit before I became an architect. So I was comfortable tearing things up and building things and had some skills. So um, I realized after taking, I took his on, on Jonathan's online course, Architect as a Developer, and it was really great. And it, it just, you know, it gets a person like me extremely fired up to go do that thing, to go yeah. build build, build make my own projects. So I was off on a tear. Uh, fortunately, I, I just finished the course in 2014 and uh, we had a family vacation planned. My girls were still pretty young to um, San Diego. So like during nap time, I ran around in the, in the rental car and I got to check out some Jonathan Siegel projects as well as, well as some of his protégés. Uh, well, and, and the godfather down in San Diego, uh, Ted Smith, Smith and others, and his partner, Kathleen remember her name but you know they they co-co-develop projects and then Sebastian Mariscal and some others that had worked with those two and that was sort of a hotbed for architect as developer so I came home really fired you know double fired up at that point spring of 2014 and I immediately started looking for um a duplex triplex kind of thing because I realized well I can't just go probably build something right away I don't have the money and everything I didn't realize yet you know how you get liquidated or excuse me, limited partners and things like that um, to get money. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll get something with some extra land or a, a plex or something and learn how to be a landlord and you know, fix something up. So very, very good luck. We found a triplex in uh, downtown Bothell in the town, again, next to where we currently we previously lived, 
now we live in Bothell. Um, and we have an old Main Street in downtown. And this was just a couple blocks, this triplex from Main Street. So I kind of lucked into it. And now we're surrounded by big buildings. Dozens of buildings have gone in. We're kind of in the, we're kind of the little up house almost, the old triplex, which I'll get to. So the, the idea was get that triplex, get it kind of uh, buffed up a little bit and stabilized, which is what we did. And uh, and then uh, eventually either demo it or um, build something on the lot. And it, I don't know it, if you want to go into that now or later, but we can get to that. That's where, well, I, where I'm now. It, it's fascinating that your background, um, you know, starts with something that's very technical and personal. Like you have to know how to fix a bike yep. in order to do it. Like you have to walk in that morning and know I'm going to problem solve this thing from start to finish. Because yep. if someone's out riding, you know, like it, it, it's a journey and yep. you start with something fixed and something that's precise and in the hopes of like, you've done it right and you set it into motion and there's something magical about that. Like, I think there's a part of the American spirit and we'll put it back to like the, the Wright brothers of like, if you want to solve a problem and you can work with your hands and you could do something, it unlocks potential all over the place. I think, I don't know how many people that, exactly. that we've, we've Matt's interviewed over the, over the years now are people who are doers like with their hands and get stuff done. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like, do you feel like you emerged from a fog to get to the place you are? Or do you feel like you just like you ascended a mountain and you slowly started to look around being like, I can climb higher. Like I can, yes. I can go do the next thing. Yeah. The mountain analogy. I always was a doer. Uh, when I was 14, I sold my motorcycle because we lived sort of out in the country. I had a dirt bike. I sold it to buy wood and I built a half pipe skateboard ramp because I was really into skating. <laughs> There you go. And I was like, I'm just going to go build this ramp. Thrasher magazine had just come out with ramp plans uh, <laughs> nearly a year before, months before. Like your parents ramp that. plans. Back then it was, you know, COD, whatever. You send in your 10 bucks and they send it, you know, hard That's to awesome. copy. It's 1984. And <laughs> 1985, we built the ramp. Like my friends helped me, but I, you know, I was leading the charge. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So it was the mountain. Uh, I was always like, I can do more. Um, there's no reason I can't do that. Um, what's going to stop me? It's just, uh, and then each each time you get to the top of, of one of those little peaks, you see the next big one and go, oh, I can do that yep. one. Oh, it's, it's it's the false summit. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So very much that. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I mean, I'm Gen X and maybe there's something also about being, I mean, my parents are amazing. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're wonderful. And they actually uh, taught me a tremendous amount about, you know, stick-to-itiveness and grit and getting things done. And so I, I appreciate that. They, they, they were raised by ranchers and farmers and stuff like that. So there's a certain amount of just, you just go get things done that they instilled in us. I appreciate that very much. It helps tremendously in this business. So it sounds like your career has kind of spanned uh, both as the architecture career, which is very kind of deeply ingrained, but what was that threshold or, or what was that defining moment in which you knew like deep in your bones that like real estate was your calling? You know, that might've been a little more fuzzy because uh, I feel like, uh, so we we bought and sold house and, and like a lot of probably Americans, um, you sell the one and you get the next one that's bigger or whatever, or the, the next place you want to be. And it it took me until we we uh, went and bought the triplex I was talking about earlier. And we built our new building in the front yard, which I'll get to later. But um, to it dawned on me like a uh, like a lightning bolt. Wait, we could have been doing this all along. We we should have tried to keep the last the old the house houses we were selling and gotten to the next one because now we were people who 
I, I couldn't even fathom this a few years prior, had owned two pieces of real estate. Like people can do this. Mm-hmm. I knew people did it, of course. My in-laws were doing it, but I didn't think we could do it. So that was what kind of clicked for me. I realized, oh, there's no limit to this. You can you can do this and you can keep doing it if you make decisions. And then I can build stuff because I know how to do that too. So I'm not sure if that's an exact question uh, answers your question, but that's for me when I sort of dawned on me much too late in life. Um, it's challenging, but it was very doable. That's great. You know, we've talked about uh, your triplex and it sounds like you do maybe a lot split or something, or you've got a yes. ADU, is that right? Yes. Okay. Uh, so what what is your ideal development? We've, we've talked a little bit about all the different facets of architecture that you've been involved in. Sure. Um, we know your background. Yeah. Uh, we know what excites you, but as far as development, what what are your ideal developments look like? That's a great question. I, I, I saw that earlier and was a really fun one to me um to me like my dream project right now is if i could um so, so a little bit of background I, I i love to travel in europe i like to travel period but i probably travel the most widely in europe and super inspired by you know the um granted you got the medieval streets and stuff but even their new architecture they're they're planning around people and walkability and transit and bikes and don't get me wrong. I've got cars too. Um, it's America, you know, it's kind of, we, we, we somewhat need them, but the idea that um, they plan in such a different way and a different scale and for, and for a different time scale and a different quality. And so I would love to bring sort of like the, the Mike Elias and um, uh, idea. Mike's the local architect. He's also, uh, you guys might know, um, a, yeah. a, a foremost authority on single stair buildings and European building techniques and so forth. Um, I would love to do like an eco district kind of project like he talks about where, um, you know, it's, it's a, a ring of, of mixed use buildings around a plaza, a green community plaza that's for everyone to use the residents and the, and the people in the community and uh, relatively uh, thin aspect buildings. So people get cross ventilation, multiple stories, but not too tall, uh, three to six stories, maybe single stair um, and like a, you've already a, a little it. village. What's that? It sounds like you've already designed it. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, I definitely got sketches. Trust me. Yeah. I got lots, lots of, you know, uh, projects I've seen that Mike and other people have posted. I would love to bring that to the United States. Um, and I think other people are doing, you, you see wonderful projects in CNU and you see other developers doing great stuff. So it's, you know, there, there are bits and pieces of this happening here and there. I would like to bring it here. I would like, I think if we, if I was allowed to, develop and build something like that, that it would be hugely popular. So that to me is a dream project. Um, yeah. And then, you know, until then building little, little bits of that, like my new project, when I did do the lot split and I built the the fourplex, I'm sort of known for online now, my, my black project that I'm sitting in now, um, black metal, you know, doing things like that, filling, infilling and, and creating community and trying to, to uh, knit people together with good, good, places, good urbanism, good buildings in the meantime. Talk, talk about your project because um, obviously Twitter sure. is a, a big community on the retweet side. And sure. um, I have to say that your your photograph of your building has to be one of the most widely shared um, <laughs> infill project. I, I don't know how many thousands of times I've like looked at it and be like, oh, I got to save that. And I realized like, no, 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 I, I've already, I've already saved this down before. Like I can't, I can't constantly use this as an example picture in my planning meetings with people. <laughs> um, Give us the origin story of that. 
you obviously had the the back property the triplex and and when did when did you decide like all right oh yeah we're gonna go do it oh it's a really good question and and um that's um i appreciate the compliments um it was a labor of love for sure um but i was going to develop the entire the entire property as i think i mentioned a little bit earlier and i realized that was a that was a lot to bite off at about a seven thousand square foot lot do you know parking at the bottom somehow and and uh and then it'd be 10 to 15 units and that seemed like a bit much to try and raise money for and i thought well if i could just chop off the front yard there was a a tree and our trampoline and some other things one part of the story i didn't tell is uh, we sold the house where we lived in the town next door where we had lived for 11 years in kenmore and we had remodeled the in 2015 the upstairs of the old triplex so I said to my wife, will you be willing to move in there? We call it the shoebox, 1,200 square feet. And uh, we save a little bit of money, travel a little bit more while I'm designing whatever we're going to put in the front yard. And she went for it. And we had a great time. And we and we were walkable at everything all of a sudden, which was really fun. But that was the germ of it. Uh, hey, we're not going to do the whole thing. I've got this brilliant idea. We're going to split the lot. We're going to cut off the front yard, which is only about 2,600 square feet. We'll... We'll we'll give ourselves an easement for the driveway around the old building, and and then I was off to the races designing um, roughly a thirty by sixty foot footprint building, and I designed it around the FHA two hundred three B their vanilla loan. Uh, I had hooked up with Incremental Development Alliance and John Anderson by then. Yeah, after the Jonathan Siegel thing, and he continued my education because you can only go you can only go so far with the Jonathan Siegel stuff, and you got to start learning more. And then uh, they, they were my people. I went to one of their their seminars down in Texas, flew down there with some some miles. And uh, John has been an amazing mentor. I still talk to him all the time. And he said, if you do a single stair, three story building, one to four units, and you live in it, you can get this loan. It's really easy to get and get great rates, et cetera, et cetera. So I started designing a project that met that loan, um, FHA, and uh, as well as fair housing, three units. So um I'm very pro accessibility, but in this case, um, we didn't have to have a, you know, an elevator or anything like that, uh, which would have made the project not financially feasible. So I designed for several years on and off, what, 2015 to 17 or so, um, trying to figure out what this project would look like. So that was, you know, it's fun. It was nights and weekends and, and, um, I got really serious and finally, uh, settled on a design I liked around 2016 and set it aside for a while and got back to construction documents and working with my civil engineer, structural engineer, um, mechanical, um, my utility contractor to plan everything. Um, so we had to do lots of digging in the street and everything um, around 2017. And I permitted it in 2018, got the money together and uh, borrowed money and started building in December of 2018. And uh, I acted as the uh, the architect, the developer, and the general contractor. I even got my general contractor's license because the city there you would, go. you'd have a license to dig in the street, and I wasn't going to ask anyone else to do it, so I did it. <laughs> got insurance and all that fun stuff, and it went really smoothly. It took one year, almost exactly, like one year and three days. We were in just uh, ten days before Christmas of 2019, so we were settled oh, in before time. the pandemic hit. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's amazing. And uh, so, yeah, I hired all the subcontractors. And of course, I did all the designing, all the planning, um, all the estimating. Um, there is not a single hat I didn't wear, except for the consultants, of course, who are critical. Um, 
did, did their their pieces. Um, so that was kind of in a nutshell. And um, I uh, got professionally got professionally photographed. And like you said, um, Mark, um, it was actually a surprise to me that it was received so well. I was honestly trying to please myself and my family and create a you know an asset. And just for once, I was going to do just what I wanted, and I did. But I had a lot of time. I had years to kind of refine, 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 refine. Yeah. And you guys probably know the adage, you know, Mark an architect and, and, and Madden engineer, you know, the simpler it looks, the harder it was to get there. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Simple is hard. So it took a, a ton of like rigor and refinement. And I also made it uh, highly energy efficient, put three inches of rigid insulation on the outside. So, some places it's rock sole, like the stair and the other places it's um, XPS because I couldn't get the three inch rock sole in the quantity I needed. And I used, you know, pretty uh, sophisticated um, air sealing. I used Aeros, Aero Barrier, which is a interior, you know, uh, uh, pressure applied um, air sealing uh, mech, uh, technology. So we're almost passive house tight. We have uh, energy recovery uh, ventilation for fresh air, uh, mini splits. Um, and so our, our walls are um, about 30, 30 to 40% more energy efficient than need be. The, the roof's almost twice as much. That's great. Super tight. So those are things people don't see. But that also allowed us to have a thicker wall, which allows, allowed me to inset the windows. And that gives a certain amount of uh, sophistication that people can't put their finger on when they see. Yeah. yeah. A real flat facade. And it's something I, I saw in Europe that I love because they, they their windows are just middle or inset because they have thick walls and super insulate. And it's the way they build. But I wanted to emulate that. And uh, it doesn't look the same here when you when you see the the. Uh, uh, most buildings here have a very flat facade with the glass right at the surface of the siding and it doesn't have the same effect. Hmm. So little things like that went a long way to give it the sort of, I think, some of the the specialness that people notice, even if they can't put their finger on it. Yeah. So you, you went through the process um, to, to do the like almost passive house, I guess, you yeah. know, like the, 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 the process there. Um, talk to me a little bit about that decision making in the mm -hmm. face of the last two years of summers that you've had up there yeah. and, and what your utility bills look like, because there's many buildings that don't even have air conditioning in your region. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The statistic you might've seen, it's true. Um, so uh, we're the least air conditioned city, you know, I'm talking Seattle Metro in the country. Um, the next closest is Portland. I think it's sixty percent of the buildings are or homes are air, air conditioned down there. Our, we have oh. we're at thirty percent up here. Mm. <laughs> Not much. When I was growing up, hardly anyone had air, air conditioning. It's getting a no. lot more common now, especially with technology like mini splits becoming ubiquitous. Um, it's been great. Uh, two two things we've had like the heat dome, the famous heat dome that happened in June um, this year and last. We've got two years of heat domes now. Um, Hundred plus weather. You know, I can come in here with the super insulated, even with a lot of glass, um, drop some shades and we uh, and with the smoke and we've got relatively fresh air and we it's cool. Um, and uh, it's very even whether it's winter or summer, we can keep the temperature relatively even as long as we sort of I call it sailing the house. It's not a house, but sailing the unit uh, with with the shades and stuff and then the systems. Um, so having always lived in older houses. Um, when, when I decided to do those, uh, those extras, you might consider them, um, 
I, I wanted good systems because I wanted uh, to experience uh, what I knew some of my clients had experienced this really comfortable building. And now I do talk to people about when, I'm, when I've got a client or something, I say, you know, we talked about the heat dome or the smoke or whatever, and if they want a little relief from that because we do have to spend more time indoors, like even up here. Um, it's made a huge quality of life difference. And I've had clients start to adopt some of those technologies because of that. So it's, it's been a good lab in that respect. Yeah, I mean, you were we were way ahead of the game there. That's awesome. Very yeah, cool. makes a big difference. And uh, my office is in the old triplex, and it's insulated, uh, but it's you know drafty and it's old, and there's lots of um, you know infiltration of air and stuff. And you sit there, I sit there and work, and I get cold. My hands are cold and everything, and even with the heaters on, and it's got mini splits because we retrofitted and everything. It's just night and day being here versus there. So um, I I try and uh, encourage. Uh, clients and when I make decisions on my own projects, okay, maybe we can have the slightly less expensive cabinets and counters because <laughs> we're going to do more insulation and we're going to do a really tight envelope and we're going to do uh, you know, fresh air ventilation and things like that. It's funny. I uh, <clears throat> went to school down here in the South and uh, there's an old kind of a story that went along with the dorm I lived in didn't have air conditioning, which in the South is a terrible idea. Uh, right, <laughs> but uh, the the story went that it was a girls' dorm, and they they opted for the the phone connection rather than air conditioning. <laughs> and uh, I don't I'm laugh. Sorry, That's uh, funny. <laughs> I I don't know if I believe that, but uh, I think since then they've gotten air conditioning. But geez, that was terrible. <laughs> seems like now with cell phones uh you can have maybe it was cell phone or i don't know you could have about have both but i don't know no that was that was prior that was definitely okay prior, yeah but, uh anyway well, let's transition here a little bit into sure. more of your philosophy sure um, you're, you're known to identify of as an urbanist mm -hmm. uh, uh you know we talked about equitable development a little bit yeah. earlier so can you Describe in your own words kind of what those labels yeah. or monikers mean to you. And Yeah, you bet. To me, urbanism is somewhat simple, um, and it can be big city or small town. It boils down to, I think, something a lot of people who are listening to this might understand, the 15-minute city. Um, and that's one of the reasons we are where we are in our little town is um, we can walk to most things, not everything, but we can walk or short bike ride, still have cars, still have to, to drive my, my daughter to school in a car because we, we waver into a different school. But urbanism to me is when most things are accessible uh, relatively nearby that you need for your, your daily life, work, school, services. Um, and uh, you get the benefit of having things close together and um, it builds community. Um, it, it requires a certain amount of density and compactness. Um, and um, I like to talk about how, you know, I think a lot of people think urbanism, New York City, you know, Rome or whatever. Those are places I certainly have fallen in love with it. But um, there are little towns all over the world but I think about the local ones I go to, like my bike adventures and things like that. We'll stop in after a backpacking trip, whatever, too. For, for, one, for one example here is Ellensburg on the eastern, eastern side of Washington, on the eastern side of the, the Cascades. And there's a lot of towns like this in Washington, Port Townsend, all over. And they've got little 
pre-war 100, 150 year old downtowns. And they've got these compact little downtowns. You've got them all over the country, right? The East Coast is covered with them, the Rust Belt, Midwest, we all have them, Oklahoma, um, or, or their little nodes within the towns of com commercial districts. That's urbanism. Um, and like in Ellensburg, you can see the prairie and the mountains a few, a few miles beyond blocks sometimes. I mean, they've got a, a rodeo grounds uh, on the edge of downtown. Um, and, and you can get out to the mountains in a few minutes, but you've got this wonderful little late 19th, early 20th century downtown where you've got, you know, all the things you'd want uh, probably to live a really, really great local life. And um, and they, they shut down the streets sometimes for farmers markets and festivals and things. So that to me is urbanism as well. Um, and so it's kind of uh, that's why I'm uh, partly enamored with like, you know, Dutch urbanism and. European, they'll they'll have like the cornfields, ten blocks on the edge of town, and they've got yeah. this super dense little core. And so, you know, that's part of my kind of urbanism evangelism work around around here is, you know, um, your grandparents would recognize this, and and it can be really good. So, not sure that uh, comports with most people's idea, but uh, you know, that living in a, t a tighter, dense, compact community with things near you nearby you can be a real life enhancing. Uh, move and way to live. And it sounds like you've described the uh, placemaking podcast uh, tour, uh, educational tour to bring clients along and uh, and other people to preach the gospel of really great places. Yeah, and, yeah. And I love rural places, and I, I'm a uh, uh, most of my life I've uh, rock climbed, mountain bike, backpacked. Um, I've got all different kinds of bicycles, and you know I love the outdoors. But if anything, it's like, I don't want to build out there so much. I want yeah. to build down and then keep those for my playtime. Right. And then it's really good for, you know, the climate and uh, beauty. And there's all these benefits to that. Man. Um, well, you, you had an amazing career. What's what's something that you've looked at as uh, kind of your origin story? Or um, you spoke maybe earlier when we were talking about the mission. Yeah. Of, of bringing everything together. D describe to us uh, what you think is your core mission. Um, that's a really good question. And I've, I don't think I've thought hard about that, but my mission is to um, um, like, I started this group Bothelites for people oriented places kind of based around strong towns principles. And the whole idea behind that, which is probably encapsulates my mission in a way is that um, we can build really good quality of life uh for everyone if we put our minds to it and that um traditional neighborhood development and urbanism can be for everyone uh and that there's something in it for almost everyone and not that everyone has to live that way we're always going to have people who need to live on farms and ranches and and things like that um but that um, we can choose, we can make choices, policy choices to bring everyone's living standard up by rethinking uh, how we live, how we move, how we interact, how we make money, how we move around. And there's almost always uh, an upside for just about everyone in that equation. And how do we get there? Um, what, what are the specific moves we need to make? And there's uh, so that's that's kind of what it, I guess 
think if I boil down what I'm trying to do in my my everyday life with, with my volunteer work and my paid work is uh, elevate everyone's sort of living experience. So um, no matter what you prefer, you can have that. Uh, there are always going to be people, like I said, who needs to drive, drive trucks and live in a small town, whatever. But if more of us uh, choose an, uh, who, who really want that walkable lifestyle can get it, then there's not as much competition and maybe the roads are a little less congested. So there's almost always an upside, but there's a lot of work to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you talked about you, you've created a group there locally. Yeah. Um, what what uh, what does the programming look like? How do you intend to spin that to try to bring is it yeah. more awareness group or people in the yeah it is um it was born out of this idea that um there was a lot of pushback on the um there was this long range plan for our for downtown Bothell to make it more compact dense and urban um and the city had been planning it for 10 15 years and was starting to implement it and there were a lot of people who lamented you know the loss of sort of the, the small town idea but we were growing rapidly and it was kind of sprawl and i said hey i really like downtown and how, how it's coming along and i think there's a lot a lot of good things about it that are going to be that people are going to like when it starts to get you know built out more and fleshed out um people already loved our main street and i said we're kind of trying to build more of that kind of thing that's what the plan involves so the idea was uh, how can we find other people who felt that way and have them sort of, if they do like those things, um, uh, share that with others and share the upsides and and not necessarily try and convince anyone. We're, we're not really trying to convince anyone. We're trying to find people who already like, they're already uh, are open-minded uh, to think about how they can continue to improve their town. People who are already interested in in making it better or like it, or, and that's not everyone. You know, some people are always going to kind of maybe complain or want things the old way, and we're not going to necessarily try and drag them along, kicking and screaming. But that's what our group does, and so we do that through advocacy. Uh, we go to to meetings, um, planning commission. Well, I'm on planning commission now, so that's a whole other story. A oh, number okay. of us, because of our advocacy work, have ended up on council or planning commission or another another boards and commissions because. We sort of naturally bubble up to those to those roles because we're encouraged or we're we're making headway. Mm-hmm. So now we're sort of some of us are pulling those levers a little bit and making the policy. But uh, we still at the grassroots level, BOPOP for short, Bothwites for people oriented places, we're advocating for safer streets and uh, uh, more innovative uh, uh, use of land. Um, one one little win. Um, uh, I introduced um, people in Bopop as well as local politicians and and people to um, Urban Three. You guys probably know about Urban Three, Joe Mancosi's firm. Um, and uh, I know there's other. Kevin Shepard's also amazing at uh, Virginity. He does the same work. And um, we finally got after years of of trying to get it on people's radar. Um, uh, I've got uh, sympathetic people in in City Hall and uh, Council. And they they got a contract with uh, Urban Threes last fall, and they just completed their first first study for us. So, trying to bring that educational piece to the public and say, you can have nice things, um, and look at all these ways. You know, if we if we kind of rethink our land use and, and maybe, maybe even look back at how we did things a hundred years ago, what was good about that, what was bad, and what we can bring forward, 
uh, Bo pops a lot about just trying to help people who are interested rethink things yeah. and, and re-envision their town and how they can help make it better. So it's like classic advocacy in that respect, like yeah. um, people who want to who want to improve their town. And there's a lot of, you know, concern about costs and we're always debt and debt like every town in America and and saying, well, you know, you want that brew pub and you also want that park. And we might have a way to, you know, now, with especially with great data and great information uh, that city council and staff are grabbing onto and working with. We can we you know, it was kind of a harebrained idea five years ago when no one would have done it. And, and we've made the, those inroads. It, it's so funny to hear you talk about, you know, the things that you've been working on um, as, as sort of new ideas, um, because for for millennia, I think we've yep. been like collecting in cities and doing things. And there's been obviously a an ebb yep. and flow to urbanism. And, and and when we crossed paths back at CNU uh, last uh, spring, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we had an amazing opportunity for everyone to kind of share and commiserate in what is what, 30, 30 plus years, 31, 32 years of this amazing confluence of so many people pouring their energy and their lifeblood into great places. And it occurs to me that even after all of that work, we may still be on the cusp of this new threshold where we're creating a culture of urbanism that's positive. That's not yeah. New York in the seventies or, you know, or DC in the eighties or, you know, San, right. San Francisco many times, uh, many <laughs> every yeah. decade for a while yeah. is the positive ways that we can look at each other collectively and say, we're bringing this thing to the market. Yeah. And, and as architects and designers, we can say, Hey, we're coming up with these ideas and putting them on paper that go get built. But it also takes the culture around us. And you've yeah. been, you've been seeding that with your community groups what are the what are the other ways that other groups could begin those types of groups or maybe more you know closely uh, you know how do we eliminate the roadblocks that keep yeah. those community groups and those conversations about good urbanism and good development from happening it's a good question and i i feel like this is this one comes up a lot um you know purely like boots on the ground sort of idea um i encourage people to now I'll plug Strong Towns a little bit because they've got a great program now called Local Conversations. You guys are, I'm sure, are familiar with, yeah. um, run by John Pattison and others. Strong Towns, um, in fact, Norm, their new their new um, uh, Canadian uh, staff member, he watched our Bopop meetings during the the pandemic on Zoom, enjoying them, and then went and started Delpop, which is his his Strong Towns local conversation, and and then just and they're just doing incredible work, but. Um, that's that's a tough question. Um, so one of the first things we did, and I think it's still effective with Bopop, was it's even on our old website, which needs updating. But um, I came up with this idea that we don't want to drive people away. Uh, we don't want to be repellent. And a lot of the stuff we're bringing up, people are just like, I don't get out of here. I don't want to hear about that at all. Again, we're not going to try and convince people who who are hostile, but. We try and draw people in and say, like, wouldn't would you love to be feel safer crossing the streets with your whether you're eight year old or eighty year old yeah. grandparent or child? Would you um, wouldn't you love if your adult children could buy a house here, which they can't anymore? Um, would you like if we weren't always in debt as a city? Um, and what, what could we do if we weren't always in debt? Um, would you like um, some things to be a little closer? Uh, would would you? Would you benefit from a corner store? So we try and um, open a conversation with 
what cool things would you love to have? Could we do together? Uh, what would make your life better? It's almost like when, when Chuck Marone talks about doing the walks, you know, the sort of Jane's walks around town and identifying little, little things they can do with crosswalks and so forth. We're trying to, to, to entice people to think about what, what might make their life better and open conversation that way. Um, so that's how we begin um, with basically, you know, kind of trying to appeal to any, everybody's innate selfish selfishness, but not in a bad way. Like we really literally want you to have a better experience as a community member. And, and we like it better. Like everything's better for us as a community. If you, if you have a better life too. So what would those things be? And how could we get there together? And are you willing to, to think outside the box a little bit to get those? Um, I, I've worked in communities where we have a, a kind of a deeply embedded suburban, you know, uh, idea. And, yeah. and most of it is actually centered not around the community that's created because everyone's you know, largely isolated. It's right. about their investment. It's we've invested True. in this house. It has a market yeah. value of X. And they don't yep. necessarily value walking to the store or you know yep. interacting in those other ways, because I think they they genuinely value the isolation in a sense that they go yep. to work for their social interaction. They have television or other entertainment venues for this. This is a place they store their stuff that they're also storing their money. That's yep. also going to have a value. The hard part about buying in real estate markets where you've mentioned is. There's not as much market flexibility to go in and buy. Yep. And and I totally understand the the argument to say that it's not isolationism and it's not selfish to like live in a suburb because they value that community. And I yeah. say this is my parents and my family and everyone. Oh yeah. People I work with. Most people I know is, live that way. Is the the quality of their decision making is the exact same as anyone who would choose to live in an urban environment. It's just that there's a market condition that's created that makes it easy to acquire that lifestyle. That's right. And I think in the cities, it becomes so much harder. And I think as the United States is going to grow into a society that values um, requisite or um, sensitive rental um, dynamics to say mm -hmm. that it's not, it's not bad to be a renter. If right. you are going to rent in a community or be a part of a community of developers and property owners that are going to continue to reinvest. And I think that's the thing that we've, because we've had this ebb and flow of urbanism and, and disinvestment yeah. is I think we're going to hopefully come to that sustainable place where the people who live there and invest there are also going to reinvest there and not just derive that value and move on. Do you see that in, in your neighborhoods and your community? Because I see yeah. a lot of development projects that you, you know, you tout and you, you support yeah. your community. Um, how can other cities um, engage both the architects, the financiers, the, 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 the designers, the civil engineers um, in that conversation? Is it through the, the, the local conversations or what's the best way to, to get involved? Um, well, I want to go back up just a moment and completely recognize that we have the same issues that you, know, you, you do in Oklahoma and elsewhere in the South. Um, very suburban. People don't think they want sometimes what we're talking about. Um, they're, it's, it's, they're a few miles out and in in, you know, it's mostly single family houses and cul-de-sacs and stuff around here. That's our development pattern. The West Coast is very young. So a lot of people just don't think you know, any of our message is applicable to them. 
so I at least wanted to say that because that's that's really challenging. Um, so one, and I just wanted to touch on that because one of the ways we, um, one of the angles we work, because this is just truly genuine, is we hear from people all the time that they're, I mentioned earlier, their adult children can't buy a house here like they did. So we're saying, you know, if we allow people to, to divide up an old, a big, a big house uh, yeah. and, and sell it into two or something like that, 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 or three or four even, or build a couple in the back, whatever. So anyway, that's one of the ways uh, that we, we do um, start to tackle that problem because we have a very similar develop, development pattern as everywhere else in America, as far as the suburbs go, no, nothing new there. Um, but as far as bringing the uh, profession in, um, interestingly here, I mean, that's th those uh, those people, just like we're, we on this podcast now, we're often the ones most interested in these topics in the first place. Sometimes we're, um, architects have been the, the people fighting the change the most as well. Yeah, they, sure. have that, they have that heavy duty investment in a, in a nice neighborhood and uh, like you said, that it's worth a lot of money. They don't want to see that tainted or affected in any way, and that—that's the only way they know. Um, and 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 you know, I understand what they're protecting there. So to, yeah, bring the professions in. I mean, um, there's the uh, the thing that I always get tagged with on on uh, uh, conversations, whether it's in public or social media, um, and when I'm talking about you know trying to think a little differently. Uh, which is, oh, you're a developer and an architect. You just want to make money. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I know they have a job too. They probably want to make money as well. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, we all have to do it somehow. And that's when sometimes a conversation comes up. Uh, we, we touched on earlier, which is most people live in something developed by a developer, often designed or engineered by professional architect or develop or engineer. So, um, so, uh, one entree for people who may not be interested in it in the profession or, or who are starting to dabble in it is uh, looking into the future. You know, what, 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 what are you going to be working on and uh, what, where are we going um, uh, as, as each industry is, look, looks ahead. And um, if, if nothing else, again, it's sort of that, well, what would be, what would be good for you as a professional to keep you going, um, not only just your paychecks, but um, to keep you engaged and interested in continuing to do good work. And that's where I think a lot of people are coming to when they come to this work, they sort of see what's the next thing. And am I involved with that? Am I getting stale? Uh, am I keeping up? And uh, whether I'm an urban planner or an architect or an engineer, um, Am I getting left behind by by new ideas? Do I want to stay up with those? That's that's those are issues I certainly see bubble up in the community I'm I'm working around. Is um, for example with with some of our city planners um, who are often you know, really amazing at what they do. They sometimes haven't heard of some of the the books we're all drawing about on Twitter and stuff like that. And I yeah. think these are really important works sometimes that are starting to predict where we're going and so i you know i reach out in that way and say well you might want to check this out and this out and this out because this is what people are going to be clamoring for especially younger people as they as they feel 
they need to change the system. Um, and uh, I've even bought books for for planners and local electives to help them keep up. So I'm not yeah. sure if they answered your question or not, Mark, but that's kind of what came to mind when you when you mentioned that. Yeah. But I, you know, if you were looking for a little different angle there, I'm happy to delve in. I think I think we've talked. You've talked about you know where where we're going, where people are trending, and. and your kind of push to help get us in that right direction or what we we believe is is the right direction right they're um, different opinions i recognize yeah, right, that. right 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 so looking forward you know you've obviously had a huge impact in the advocacy you know locally and even outside of just your local community just through social media and, yeah. and other outlets it, kind of looking forward 200 300 years in the future yeah. um, what what do you see your legacy being not only as an architect mm -hmm. developer an activist uh, advocate um, what what does that look like that's a that's fun um, <laughs> I, I don't think I'll be remembered much but uh, maybe hubris of me to think I will be but my hope you know in my little corner of the world is that um, I I uh, that people realized I was part of a small growing movement to um, that when we, when we started to get ourselves painted into a corner that seems sort of unsustainable, um, whether it's a climate issue or a transit issue or how we get around, how we get food and how we house ourselves that I helped, you know, start to turn that corner a little bit that I was just one of the, you know, thousands of voices maybe millions who started to, to, um, I hope, um, move us towards something maybe a little more timeless, like, like people like strong towns and CNU and others talk about, Hey, we, we had this figured out for a long time. We got a little off track and I helped nudge the train back on the track a little bit. Um, and I did that through a slightly better built environment right where I was planted and a little better uh, community, uh, immediate, immediate, uh, you know, city region scale. If if I if I'm a little drop in the bucket that pushes us around that corner a little bit, that's enough for me. Man, that's, that's a great sentiment, and I really appreciate this the earnestness and and understanding that like we're all we're all working, we're all pulling in the same direction. I feel like and. Uh, despite, you know, economic challenges or, you know, social unrest, um, all, all the things that we can look at in society as the barriers yeah. that keep us from, you know, doing the thing is just like we started and just like your work is if you can do something with your hands, if you can do something small and make that impact um, and, and see where it can grow, we start to connect with the other people who are working with their hands and doing something small and, and making a yeah. go of it. So I really appreciate uh, all of your work and everything you've done. Um, is there anything that we haven't asked that uh, that yeah, you'd like to discuss? Not necessarily, but I did want to touch on that because that's sort of a, a good way to, to to wrap in a way that um, I would really want to emphasize whether it's an architect thinking about getting into development, do it, start it, make the first move, do something. Uh, and whether it's trying to make your your town stronger or better or um, uh, make a little dent in a problem here or there. Do Make a first move, do a little something. I cannot believe 
the tiny things I do that I don't even think matter that snowball and people grab onto like just doing something and people go, Oh, look, he did something. Well, I think (laughs) I want to do something now. Hey, you want to go talk over coffee about the thing you did? I, I just, I never want anyone to discount how just the little things add up. Um, I never thought in my wildest dreams, anything that I was doing the last five years would amount to what it has so far. And I haven't gotten rich or wealthy or famous, but it's enriched my life tremendously. Introduced me to countless people. Probably more. I've probably met more people in the past, you know, five or six years uh, around my interests than I probably have in my whole life. Um, it's just like everything blossoms and it's from just these little moves. Yeah. Going to a council member and go to a council meeting and, and, uh, hooking up and talking urbanism with someone nearby or how, um, one of the things I love about local politics and is, um, there's less partisanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, Hey, let's go figure out how to get more street trees or something, yeah. you know? And we're not talking about left, right, red, red, blue, whatever it's, street trees yeah i love that the, the only people that hate the hate the trees are the are the ones who are uh, running the power lines or uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so anyway that would be like uh that would be the one thing i would want to emphasize and i had in my notes that um whether it's an architect doing their first project or someone trying to change their community i i know it's corny it's it's uh it's probably cliche but just don't ask or underestimate the small moves or, or just doing the first thing. Dang. Oh, that's a great, that's a great transition. <laughs> I, I will say one more thing real quick. Yeah. Um, well, Carrie, I, I've really appreciated your time and, and obviously all of your work to this date. Um, let's find a way and connect uh, with the audience uh, that we have with the placemaking podcast. And let's, yeah. let's find a way to go build an echo district or a, a 15 minute city uh, yeah. where, where some community out there may not think they don't have the resources. Yep. Um, yep. You've worked. You've worked across the country, and, and Matt and I have too. Mm-hmm. Um, let's find a way to to go build one of those eco districts. I agree. No, I think we can. I think there is. Uh, I think there is financing. I think there is interest. I think that someone has the location, and I think there's the will, the political will, you know, wherever to get this done somewhere. And people are doing similar things. So I agree. Let's get it done. Um, it can be done, and we're going to keep keep chipping away at it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not for everyone, but there are a lot of people who want it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we'll uh, wrap up here and, and give us an opportunity for those listening that maybe haven't seen you on Twitter yet or sure. uh, any of your other, you know, uh, website or anything. If you could just kind of give us yeah. an idea for them where they can find out more about what you're doing and sure, maybe jump on board. Yeah, um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, as people know. Some strong opinions sometimes, but yeah, I, I won't leave you I hope. Lots of good retweets. Uh, my my Twitter handle is at Carrie Westerbeck. That's at C-A-R-Y-W-E-S-T-E-R-B-E-C-K. Everybody knows who I am when I put out an opinion. I'm not hiding myself. <laughs> um, I do have an architecture website. It's Westerbeck architecture.com um it doesn't have all my projects on there it's, it's got at least a sampling um our group is called bopa bothelites for people oriented places we have a website i got it's a little stale now bopop.org um the facebook page is a little more um lively um 
for those who are on that platform. So the most places I can be found, um, I have a personal page on Instagram, but I, I'm, I'm not real good about keeping up on urbanism stuff there unless I'm on a trip. So those are the biggies. I'd say if, if people want to find me though, um, and I'm on Twitter too much, so it's really easy to find me there. My DMs are open, um, open to ideas. I love talking to people. Hit me up. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Carrie. Really yeah. appreciate your time. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for thank everything. You